Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. Jason Cole has written about sports in the NFL for 35 years for such outlets as the Miami Herald, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, Bleacher Report, Yahoo.com. Most recently, he's written a biography about NFL legend John Elway. It's called Elway, A Relentless Life, which Jason folds right into our theme on this podcast. Relentless, unstoppable, unstoppable, relentless, pretty much the same things, right? Uh, Absolutely, but you guys, um, I think, top even Elway in terms of being unstoppable. So Wow. We're off to a great start here. Thank you, Jason. I, I learned from the best. <laughs> hey, you were relentless in your pursuit of this biography and, and all that comes with it as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did, did I hear right? Did you interview about 200 people for this book and John Elway gave you access to many of them? Uh, John gave me access to a fair number of them. Um, I would say probably 20, 25%. And then I found the other, you know, 160 or so. So it's over 200 people, yes. You know, some of them are, I guess you would say, off the record for background kind of purposes. But yeah, over 200 people. It took me a couple of years to to hunt down all these interviews. Absolutely. Jason, um, there have been a lot of uh, books, features, articles, whatnot written about John Elway. Can you talk about your history with John being Stanford guys and how this book originated? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I was a freshman in 1980 sitting in the stands at Stanford Stadium. Yeah, I remember seeing him throw a, a slant pass to a wide receiver and I'd never heard a sound of a football hit a human being that was that loud. So if you go back to 1980, like that's a vivid thing in my head. And then seeing him throw a pass, I talk about it in the book, you know, seeing him throw a pass at Cal and then all the other things he did. So that is sort of the trigger point for me. And then following his entire career, you know, including sort of being curious about him going into the arena league which didn't seem like the sexiest thing in the world to do for a former player. You know, you kind of expected he was going to do TV and he didn't do that. He went a different route and then he finally got back into it. And I've never worked this hard to craft the story. I mean, look, I've done some, you know, some pretty tough investigative stuff over my career, you know, the Reggie Bush story and some other stuff like that. But this like there was a demand from within myself. I wanted this to be really great and great, great reporting, but also the writing to really sing at a level that was the best that I could possibly produce. All right. So keeping in mind that you've known him since the eighties in your research, whether talking to John himself or those close to him, did anything you find out about John surprise you? Any story that you said, whoa, I had no idea. I think the background on the Arena League, because I didn't know all the details on that, but how hard he worked. Like, the fact that he was willing to fold T-shirts. This is John Elway. (laughs) And, And I know it doesn't seem like a really big thing, but here's a guy running an organization 
you think he's just coming in, kind of lending his name to make it work, picking out players, you know, doing this as kind of a hobby. But he's examining the books. He wants to understand how the how the money's made. He wants to understand how the salary cap works in the arena league. He wants to know that the coaches really know what they're doing. He had to fire Bob Beers, the first head coach, because he realized that guy didn't know how to coach at that level. And that was tough because it's a family friend. He had to fire some friends of his who were on the staff because he realized really quickly, wait a sec, the arena game is not the same thing as the NFL game. And I've got to find people who are experts at this. So he had to make some really hard decisions and including of all things, you know, one night the T-shirts that they're supposed to sell the next day show up and there's like four people left to fold all these T-shirts. I mean, again, this is John Elway. I mean, he can go print money in his backyard, right? And he's sitting there folding T-shirts to sell them the next day. And that kind of took me aback to say, this guy's really, truly serious about this. I mean, there, there are a lot of stories. The, the one about him you know, pitching in high school in the championship game. That's an athletic achievement. But, you know, I'd seen so many amazing athletic achievements that that one didn't jump off the page the way the dedication to his craft in his post-playing career jumped off the page to me. So, so do you think there was an event in his life or a series of events that made him the way he is that, that, that need to accomplish, accomplish, accomplish that, that, competitive nature or or do you think it was innate look part of it has to come from within so some of it is innate but it's nurtured very strongly by his dad and even his mother like his mother's pretty intense woman too i really think jack was the person who took it upon himself to say i'm going to teach him how to be passionate about this and teach him the thinking and the fun and the joy of competing and constantly doing it. So he took that that innate part of John and he brought it to full fruition. And that's the artistry of Jack and it's the artistry of this combination of father and son um, that that comes out in a lifetime. You know? And that's really, that's really the best way that I can explain it. I mean, I, I think in some ways Jack and John are this perfect combination to create this athlete, this person who wants to continually chase accomplishment. Because Jack wanted to be like that too. He just wasn't as good an athlete, obviously. But he made it a joy for John to do that. It's almost like the Marinovich story without all the bells and whistles, right? Without all the science behind it. It is organic. It is a father uh understanding what it takes to build an athlete and yet allowing John room, right? He's a coach. Jack Elway was a coach, but you can only go so far. So my favorite part of the book is, is how he let go of the leash on a couple of times. He let Elway be coached. He wasn't the one down his throat every time. And that was very important to John's development. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Vic, you've hit it perfectly. Jack never actually coached any of John's teams. He never coached Little League baseball. He never coached him in peewee football or, you know, whatever the Little Grizzlies is what they called it in Montana. He never coached him in high school. He never bothered his high school coaches, right? He never said, oh, why don't you run these plays or here's an offense for you. I mean, he just never, ever did that. And even when they would talk after games, 
he didn't talk to him about, oh, you know, your, your feet, your, your feet weren't good on the setup for this, you know, out pattern that you threw or something like that. It was never technical style of football. It was all, hey, look, when that kid dropped the pass, your body language was bad. You got to pick him up. You got to be more supportive. You know, you, you know, what were you thinking at this point in time of the game so that you, know, you can help the team be better? I think that was the, those were the things that Jack was talking to him about constantly. And again, again, never coached him, never, never interfered. He tells that wonderful story to Sports Illustrated, which I, you know, had to, had to lift from Sports Illustrated because Jack has obviously passed away. But he talked about sitting at the, the table every morning going, you know, Jack, old boy, you must be the dumbest, some, you know, whatever uh, in the world uh, because you had the greatest quarterback in, in the country sitting across a breakfast table and you let him get away but he was glad to do that and let somebody else do the teaching while he maintained the joy of just being a parent and yet there's the great story in here jack was the head coach at san jose state john played at stanford and as the schedules would allow stanford played san jose state one game and it was one of those games where john wasn't 100 percent. he had some ankle issues and San Jose State brought the blitz and they beat him and battered him. And you could tell the conflict within the father to have to beat his son. That, that story to me was amazing. Those stories you don't hear about. How difficult must that have been for Jack Elway to beat his child prodigy into the ground the way he did that day? He had to do his job first, which I think is what John both respected and expected. Like, Jack is responsible to this whole group of people and they're trying to win the game. And that was what this was all about, win the game. And he had to allow his defensive coordinator, Claude Gilbert, to attack his son because John had a bad ankle sprain from the season opener against Purdue. So the next week, despite having been on crutches for four straight days, John plays against San Jose State and his father, and yes, they blitz him like crazy. They have a specific design to the blitz to deal with how Stanford handled the blitz. Claude had figured it out, you know, pretty easily. And yeah, they sack him, I think, eight times. He had the worst, by far the worst game of his entire college career that day. And Jack had to witness that. And then he had to witness his own players sort of mock his son at the end of the game. And you hear, you see how it plays out for Jack as he wants, he just, he's begging the Stanford coaches basically in a way to take his son off the field. That doesn't happen. And they, they got to work it out after the game. You know, John understood. But then the next day when they go and watch film, I love that scene where, where Jack is playing the film of the game and they get to the point, this really critical point in the game that I described where one of the San Jose State players is mocking John after a sack and Jack, I'm not going to spoil the rest of the story because people, I want people to read it, but Jack has a really difficult moment at that time and his players understand fully. Steve Clarkson talked about it, understand fully what it was like for a father to have to beat his son at that level of sports. Let's take a quick time out, and when we come back, we'll be rejoined by the man who wrote the John Elway biography, NFL writer Jason Cole.
We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, a world-class medical destination at the forefront of education, science, medicine, and healthcare, right in the center of the Rocky Mountain region. We're back with NFL writer Jason Cole, the author of the John Elway biography, Elway, A Relentless Life. The father-son uh, relationship, the dynamic was so integral to the book and, and, and fascinating in a lot of ways. Um, but it, it wasn't always winning for John. He looked From the outside, he was the golden boy. Everything looked perfect in his life, especially to fans. But right after he retired, Jason, things got kind of dark for John, as we all know. In, in the 2000s, he no longer had the comfort and the camaraderie of the locker room. He no longer had the the safety of, of being the football player and, and all that came with it, all the benefits that came with it. His twin sister passed away. Uh, his dad passed away. He went through a less than amicable divorce. Uh, he and some business partners were rebuffed repeatedly in their efforts to buy an NFL team. He couldn't land a job with the team he played for for 16 years, uh, the Denver Broncos. Plus, as you mentioned earlier, he was working with an Arena League team, which probably felt a bit humiliating at times. It was a long period of time where this darkness uh, descended upon him. How did he fight through that? I think, again, you talk about the Arena League team being a humiliation. I don't ever get the sense that he felt that way. I felt, you know, in, in talking to him and to other people, he took it so seriously as a learning process and to build his resume, to prove to people, look, you know, you're not going to hire me to do personnel. Okay. I get it. You know, Shanahan doesn't want to have me around. I get it. You know, we've got all sorts of other issues going on in my life. I get it. You all think that I don't want to compete, that I just want to take it easy and, and be at home. I get it that that's what you think is going on here. Let me prove you wrong. Let me prove to you that I'm not going to be like Dan Marino and take a job and then two weeks later decide, oh, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm not up for this kind of deal, which is what happened. I covered that when I covered the Miami Dolphins. I saw it firsthand. And everybody thought that Elway was going to be the exact same way. And he wasn't. And this was part of him saying to everybody, Look, I'm going to tell you, and I will show you this is what I'm going to do. And I think that that was a respite from, you know, the personal disasters that existed. Yeah, I mean, him losing his twin sister, you know, Jana was, uh, he was so close with Jana. Um, and he talks about it a lot, um, that they had, an, you know, an unspoken ability to communicate. And he she was the one that he leaned on after that, the, the Mile High Massacre, right? They lost to Jacksonville. She's the one he called and he cried on the phone with her, right? And he loses her almost immediately after, after he retires. And he finds out that playing golf all the time on that amateur tour is just not that much fun. And then he loses his dad, you know, as well. And then, you know, his marriage ends um, after they basically can't communicate anymore. So... To me, getting into the Arena League was a way of proving everybody wrong, which is what every great athlete wants to do. And it was a diversion from all the darkness of the early 2000s. 
you know, he meets his second wife during that period of time. So, I mean, there's some, there's some glory, there's some personal rebound, but I really think the Arena League was, was central to him, to proving so many people, to, to proving to so many people that he really wanted to do this, that he was bought in. Jason, can you tackle the perception, and I believe it's a perception out there, there are still some who think, well, you know, John was handed the keys to this Broncos franchise. And, you know, what did he really do to earn the job? Although you go through the whole Arena League thing, he learned the trade from inside out. But, you know, really, what does he do in the offices over there? Can you spell out the kind of work he puts in? I mean, how much does he watch tape? Does he does he make all the calls? Where is his work ethic in running the franchise? Uh, he's there. He's there watching tape. He's really into it. I mean, look, any anybody who wants to go to Mobile, Alabama in January for the Senior Bowl, anybody who wants to go to Indianapolis for the NFL Scouting Combine, like you're bought in, okay? Because there are better places in the world to be than Mobile in January or Indianapolis in February. And I've done those trips a lot, right? So those are those are the insider of the insider kind of jobs. That's not like going to the NFL owners meetings and being at the Ritz Carlton. Okay, that's it's not the same thing. So he wants to work at this. He wants to pick out football players. He wants to do the scouting and he watches tape. And you'll have Matt Russell walk in or some of the scouts walk in and say, "Hey, look over this group of tight ends. We're thinking about these guys." you know, from the fifth round on, what do you, what do you think of their body language? And he's going back and forth, looking at that tape, you know, going fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind, going back and forth, trying to judge, can this guy play or not? Does, can this guy help us? So he is completely bought into that. He's out on the practice field and he's studying, not only can guys play, but how do all the guys get along? What makes this group feel like it's going to be a team? Is there communication? Do they answer to one another? You know, are they working together? That kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I, I 100% believe that he loves what he's doing and he wants to do it because that's part of the competition. And anybody who thinks, oh, you were just handed the keys, you're just observing, no, he's way more than that. He is making final decisions. But I would say this, he's not making final decisions alone. He's listening to other people and he's really good at listening. I would, I would, I would argue in terms of with his scouts, with his personnel people, he has the final call, but he's deferring to them a lot. His competitive nature is, is Jordan-esque. I mean, if you're going to compare other athletes to Michael Jordan, John Elway is right up there, whether it's playing cards, uh, playing ping pong, uh, wanting to win on the field as a player, wanting to win off the field as an exec. Do you think being an executive with the Broncos – fully satisfies John Elway's competitive nature? No, it's not playing. You know, there's, not, there's nothing that replaces playing. Right? And, and he even recognizes, look, 80% of what goes on out there is the players. You pick the best players. You, you, you do the best you can. You pick, some, you pick your best coaches you can find. You know, if you have to find new coaches, you find new coaches. But 80% of what goes on is on the field. And he's not on the field. He's not in control. He's sitting up up there and observing. And yes, he may have final say over who's the coach and who are the players, but he's not making the plays. And nothing will ever replace that part of it. Um, so 
the satisfaction is not nothing close to being able to play. But it's also not the same as, I'll say this, it's a lot better than going to some amateur golf event and just hitting balls for two or three days, right? He gets way more satisfaction out of doing this because it's a lot harder and it's part of a team, it's part of an organization. And I feel like he loves that part of it. It's not the locker room, which you talked about a, a little while ago, Les, where you know he used to be able to come into the locker room and be with the guys. It's not quite that, but it's as close as you're gonna get to that being part of an organization. Most successful people, um, whether they admit it or, or not, they, they, they want to be liked, right? And when John Elway played football for the Broncos, you know, I grew up here. He was, he was the guy, the God. I mean, he, he was the most popular person in Colorado. How does he accept criticism now that he's running the team and not everything works according to plan? It's a lot easier uh, to manipulate a team when you're the quarterback of that team than when you're the GM of a team. Look, I, I don't think anybody likes being criticized, and John doesn't like it. I think he accepts that it's part of the deal. Um, but he'll make his little snide remarks, like when he talks about Twitter being, you know, a megaphone for morons. You know, I've heard him say that. He's not wrong uh, about that. And, you know, he allows that people are going to take their shots. But I also think that he understands if you want to be in this dance, if you want to compete with the big boys in the NFL, that goes with the territory. Um, yeah, it was, again, it was easier when you were playing and you had more control over it or you were the guy that everybody was trying to emulate. Like nobody really emulates the, the guy who's sitting in the, in the suite upstairs picking players. They want to be the player on the field, right? But if you can't be that guy, you might as well be in charge. And I think he always – he will pick being in charge and doing what he can to help a team win and accepting the criticism that goes with it, um, even if it sometimes hurts a little bit and he gets a little annoyed with it. He is Jason Cole, longtime NFL writer. He's written his sixth book. It's called Elway, A Relentless Life. And we've got the holidays coming up, Jason. Would make for a great holiday present for the NFL fan in your life or for yourself. Where, where can people get the book? They can go to their favorite bookstore. But if you like to sit at home and avoid all the dangers of the great outdoors right now, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You can get it right there. They'll ship it to you. You'll get it in two days. Jason, really appreciate your time. All right, guys. I really appreciate yours. Love the podcast. Thank you so very much for doing this and uh, listening to me for a little while. And thanks for the book. I, I, I devoured this thing. I, I've read so much about John Elway, but there are so many stories here that uh, my eyes have never seen. So appreciate the insight. That makes me really happy, Vic. It really does. Thank you for saying that. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable Stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable Podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.